0: Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. Today we are kicking off a new series called Relationship Killers, and I don't know if you've been to the store lately, but they've got roses out and boxes of chocolate, and that's because we're 10 days away from Valentine's Day, and love is in the air, and there's something about the month of February that makes me want to talk about dating and mating and relating and all the things of that sort. And just as Johnny and Chachi sang, there's some things that we just shouldn't do if If we want to have healthy, good relationships, and all the women are like, amen, you men, amen. Just remember, we're feeding you next week, so you need to be kind to us this week. Otherwise, they're all hot chilies, and you won't be happy with us whatsoever, amen. So here's the deal, as we begin this series talking about relationship killers, there's certain things that if we do them in our relationship, it's not going to be good for the relationship. We've all been there, we've all made mistakes in our relationships, and we're not just talking about in marriage and in romantic relationships, but even in friendships, there's things that we do sometimes that are not good for the relationship. But here's the good news I have for you, and you may not believe this, and I'm in fact going to tell you later that you probably don't fully embrace this. But God is an expert on relationships. Some of us from another generation are like, no, that's Dr. Phil. And then some of you are even older, you're like, no, it's Oprah. And no, no, the expert on relationships is God. And in fact, it would be appropriate to say that God is the God of relationships. That if we want to know what a proper relationship is, if we want to know how we should connect with one another, if we want to know how to properly love, we should look to the God who says, I am love. We should look to the God who created relationships, who created us to function together socially the way that we do. And so when we look at the Bible, the Bible is God's way of trying to coach us on how to properly have relationships. So when we look to the Bible, the first thing God's trying to coach us in is number one, and this is pretty big, how to receive God's love. There is a God who loves us, but how do we exactly receive that love? If you can't receive the love of God, it's gonna be impossible for you ever to give the love of God. So number one, God's coaching us on how to receive that love, but then to reciprocate and love him back. When we love God back, what do we call that? That's worship. That is how we worship him. So the first thing, receiving God's love, loving him back, but then, now that I've received God's love, he says, here's the most important thing, is to love me, but now to love your neighbor. And so he is coaching us through the Bible on how we should connect, how we should relate one to another, how do these personal relationships work. And so if we look to him, we're going to know what we should do and what relationship killers we should avoid. Now here's the deal in the first century going way back 2000 years ago there was a group of Christians who lived in Europe in the city of Corinth and these Jesus followers They didn't know Jesus. They were just living life without ever having any connection to the God of relationships. But then they put their faith and trust in Jesus. They believed that he actually resurrected. He came back from the dead. And they were beginning to try to live their lives in such a way that would honor God. But their relationships were all messed up. And so what they found is that they had questions about how do I be a Christian and begin to relate to people the proper way. And so they did something that was really good is that they got together and they formulated their questions. They said, let's get the questions that we have and let's get some answers. So they put their questions together and they sent them to a church leader. And the church leader they sent them to was a guy by the name of Paul. And Paul received their questions, and what he did is he felt like it was important for them to get an answer, but he couldn't go in person to talk to them. He couldn't get to the city of Corinth, so what he did is he did the next best thing. He wrote them a letter. And in that letter, he addressed the questions that they had about how exactly are we in our world today supposed to live in relationship to others now that we've embraced Jesus. And here's the crazy thing. 2,000 years later, we still have that letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth. In fact, it's found in our Bibles. What? Some of you are like, that's crazy. I know. Now, here's the thing. We do not have a copy of the list of questions that they sent to Paul right? So they say, hey, here's our questions. We don't know what happened to that, but we do have his response. We do have his answer to their questions, and so we can kind of speculate. We can guess a little bit about what their questions were, but what has happened throughout time, in case you didn't know, is that the church said, we believe that this letter that Paul wrote wasn't just Paul's opinion. It just wasn't his take. It wasn't just an opinion piece that he put together. We actually believe that this was something that God breathed upon, that as Paul wrote this letter that it was accurate, it was true, and it reflected eternal truths. And so the church got together and they said, we believe that this is so important, we want to make copies of it. And so they began to pass it out to all the other believers. And about 300 years later, they called together this council of all these church leaders. And they said, do we believe that this is truly from God? And they said, yes. And because of that, that is why we still have a copy of what is called 1 Corinthians. So as we start this series, we're going to start with an interesting, maybe challenging passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this is going to be Paul's answer to this group at Corinth, one of their questions that they had about following Jesus. So are you ready? Come on, here we go. This is not a passage that people preach on often, so get ready. This is going to be fun. Here we go, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. It says, now, regarding your question, all right, so they had a question, and their question was about the young women who are not yet married. I don't know what exactly their question was, but this is the answer. This is the response in reply to the question about young women who are not yet married. Paul says, I do not have a command from the Lord for them. Okay, well, that's not helpful, Paul. Thank you. We wrote you a letter. Now you're right. I don't have a command from the Lord. Oh, but that's always important. There's a significant uh, connecting word here. But the Lord in his mercy, as in like he is being kind, the Lord in his mercy, he has given me wisdom that can be trusted. And not only can it be trusted, I will share it with you. Isn't that good news? Verse 26 says, because of our present crisis, because of the present crisis, or if you're looking in your Bible, it might have a footnote and it might say, because of the pressures of life, I think it is best to remain as you are. Now, I don't know what that means yet, but we're gonna continue. Verse 27 says, if you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. Uh, okay, so he says, I think it's best to remain in whatever relationship status that you have on Facebook right now is, unless it's complicated. If you have a wife, hey, keep her, if you don't have a wife, don't 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 pursue that. But verse 28 says, But if you do get married, like it's not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it's not a sin. H- however, those who get married at this time, remember. This present crisis, the pressures of this life. Those who get married at this time, they will have, everybody say it. Mm. All the single people are like, yeah, glad I ain't got that. And Paul says, I am trying to spare you those problems. Those problems and troubles that come from being married in this present time. But he continues, verse 29, he says, but let me say this, Dear brothers and sisters, anytime we're reading the scripture and it talks about dear brothers and sisters, this is saying, Hey, this is to you who have been adopted into the family of God. This is my Christian brothers and sisters. Like we are together in this. Listen, Christians, those who are trusting Jesus, let me say this the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things i think that just included all of us <laughs> you're like i don't weep i'm not rejoicing i do buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions final verse those Who use the things of the world should not become attached to them, for this world, as we know it, will soon pass away. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, this is some good stuff. This is in your Bible. Some of you are like, I did not remember reading this at all, Pastor. It's good. I like this passage because it is talking about relationships. People have questions about relationships and Paul is saying, hey listen, God has given us some wisdom on how we're supposed to think about being single and about how we think about being married. Uh, The late pastor Tim Keller and his wife Kathy, they wrote uh, a book called The Meaning of Marriage, Facing the Complexities of the Commitment with the Wisdom of God. And in their book, they address this passage. And I want to just give you a quote from them because I think that it's so helpful. He says this, what does this passage, 1 Corinthians 7, mean... For our attitude toward marriage and family. We just read this passage, but what should it mean towards how we think about marriage? Our attitude, our disposition, our perspective on on marriage and family. Well, here's what Paul says. It means that both being married and not being married are good conditions to be in. You're like, but I don't think it's good to be single. Well, that's because you're not thinking about it the way the Bible's teaching it. And that's why I'm here. Paul says it means that both being married is good and not being married is good. Let's continue. We should be neither overly elated by getting married nor overly disappointed by not being so. Because. Christ is the only spouse that can truly fulfill us and God's family is the only family that will truly embrace and satisfy us. If we take this passage to heart, if we allow this to shape how we view marriage and singleness and our relationship status, it's going to adjust our values and attitudes from what 21st century American culture and Disney and rom-coms, and romantic movies has taught me that marriage and singleness is, and it's going to adjust how I think about things. If I say 40-year-old virgin, you in your head are like, boo, negative, not good, don't want to be that, but God says that's not a bad thing. How many of you guys heard the the joke about, um, you know, your spouse being the old ball and chain? You may heard that one? Yeah. I don't use that one because that's a relationship killer. Okay. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Stop. The, the figure of speech implies that your relationship partner can hold you back as this old ball and chain from doing what you really want to do. And Paul, he doesn't frame marriage in that sort of negative manner, but he does agree that marriage does put certain responsibilities on a person that sometimes will diminish their ability to focus on other aspects of God's mission. So what Paul says in this passage, he says that singleness is a gift of God. Because when you're single, you're free from these additional responsibilities that come from being married. However, being freed from the proverbial ball and chain is not about doing more of what you want to do, but it's about doing more of what God would want you to do. So there's a guy by the name of Ben Witherington III, and in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, he says this. He says that Paul is not so narrow-minded that he thinks all must become full-time missionaries like himself. But he does believe that all must bear witness in whatever social situation, that would be whatever your relational situation is, that they find themselves with their lives and their words. This is one reason that he encourages Christians to remain in their current state. And there's another reason, he continues on, the Corinthians were very status-conscious people you rich you poor you single you married you divorced you widowed they're very conscious of your status and as a part of his argument against divisions and factions created by status stratification paul injects a dose of eschatology which relativizes the importance of all social status what is really important is not one's social position but one's sociological condition even a slave can be the lord's freedman Thus, what is crucial is whether or not one is a Christian. Everything else is of relative worth in a world that is winding down. Now, let's break some of that down, because some of you might have got lost. Corinthians were very status-conscious people. We understand that. We judge people immediately based upon what they drive, what they wear, where they're at. They're very conscious of whether you, where you are at in society, Um, As a part of Paul's argument against having these divisions, when we come together in the church, we shouldn't be looking down on some people or looking up at some people because of their status in this world. Oh, they make more money than me. Oh, they drive a nicer car. He's trying to say, hey, we shouldn't be having that. So as part of his argument against divisions and factions created by this status stratification, you guys remember like there's different layers of the sky and the stratosphere, yet different layers of dirt. Like instead of having all of these levels that we're seeing people and putting them in, here's what Paul does. He injects a dose of eschatology. Eschatology is the study of end time. So, so when this earth is past, when, when God has came back, when the end of time is here, what you had in your net worth means zippity-doo-dah. Okay. When we get that little dose of eschatology, it helps us to stop thinking about things temporarily, but think about things eternally. What's going to last forever? Well, your banking account isn't going to last forever. That car you're excited about, it's not going to last forever. Whatever piece of technology you have that you're so excited about, it's not going to last forever. So he injects a dose of eschatology, and that idea of thinking about things from the end, thinking about eternal things, relativizes the importance of all social status. Okay, so how important are the relationships that we have? Um, I was talking with my man Chris in the back. He was uh, out of town. He was in Virginia. He was doing some work. And uh, anyway, he he, he works on machinery, and he was with his buddy. And the guy was up on top of this engine. He's down below, and he's like, hey, listen, I I know you know this engine better than me. What am I supposed to do? And he's like, well, pull that plug. Well, he pulls the plug, and guess what? It was the wrong plug to pull. And all of a sudden, he's in like 32-degree weather being poured over with coolant. And you know what? He was not cool even though he was drenched in coolant he was hot and he might have forgot for a second that Jesus was the savior of his soul (laughs) he might have forgot that that was his moment to witness and he let his co-worker know how displeased he was with the situation but here we are weeks later how important was that event He lost his cool. It was the biggest deal in the moment. But now, today, it's not that big a deal. Fast forward a year from now, is he even going to remember that that happened? Fast forward five years from now, is it that big a deal? So often we get in these fights in marriage and in life with people, and we think it's the biggest deal in the world. And then like a week goes by and we forget about it. Our perspective, our priorities are messed up. And what Paul is saying is when we think about relationships in general, we're not thinking about them from eternity's vantage point. We're not thinking about them as God thinks about them. We're just thinking about them in the here and the now, and I'm uncomfortable and unhappy. Here's the dose of eschatology. It helps relativize the importance of all social statuses. It helps me to realize this isn't probably that big a deal. It's not as important as I'm making it. But what is really important is not one social position whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have money or don't have money, but one's soteriological condition. You're like, what in the world does that word mean? That is the doctrine of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be in right relationship with God? When we begin to think about things from eternal perspective, we stop thinking about them, looking at them through my earthly eyes and my vantage point of culture, but I begin to say the most important thing is whether or not I know God. My soteriological condition, am I saved? Am I with God? Because even a slave who owns nothing, has nothing, can be the Lord's freed man. He can be everything in the kingdom of God. Thus, conclusion, what is crucial is whether or not one is a Christian. Everything else is of relative worth in a world that's winding down. You guys with me? Is maybe a little deep, but it's so good. Because when you can adjust your perspective and begin to live, not just thinking about it from your perspective, but from God's perspective, it changes everything. And if you want to have relationships that last, no matter what relationship advice I give over the next three weeks, if you do not have your heart positioned correctly with God, the rest of it doesn't matter without God in the center of your life and his Holy Spirit living inside of you, at best you're just trying to adjust your behavior. But God is the only one who can adjust your heart. He can give you new desires, new ways of thinking about things, new ways of approaching life. Only God can do that. You're not going to get that from psychology or from Dr. Phil or from more Oprah or whatever relational advice that you want to find. God is the one who can change our heart and help us to see things the right way. So if you want the best in your relationships, you have to allow God to coach you in those relationships. But here's the problem. We don't really think that God is an expert on relationships. If we did, we would look to him for help in our relationships, but he's the last place that we look. We do everything else we can to fix our relationships and our own power before we get on our knees and cry out to God. God but he's the expert on relationships and if we're smart, we will approach him and invite him into our lives and ask him to guide and direct us like the church at Corinth did. And so because we don't look to God for help in our relationships, and since most of all of life is relationship, it's relationship to God and relationship to others, that means that we're probably not looking to God for much of anything. Which means that some of us are guilty of living as Christian atheists. I first heard this term over a decade ago from a guy by the name of Craig Rochelle in a book that he wrote. What is a Christian atheist? Well, a Christian atheist is someone who believes in God but lives as though he doesn't exist. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. But if we just look at your life, you're living it like an atheist. It's like God doesn't exist. A a, a person may label themselves as a Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian. They may go to church. They may talk about God. They may listen to Caliph. It's positive and encouraging. (laughs) They may drive with a fish on the back of their car, but their belief in God doesn't move from their head to their heart. And they've missed what it really means to be a Christ follower. See, Christian atheists crave acceptance from people more than acceptance from God. They do whatever it takes just to alleviate their guilt. They think more about life on earth than eternity in heaven. They gauge their morality by comparing it to others. They want to be saved from the penalty of sin without really changing their lives. They only turn to God when they're in a bind. They're not much different than the rest of the world. And essentially they want benefits of what Christ did without really conforming to who he is. They believe in God... But they live as though he doesn't exist. And in Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. You ever met that person that talks really the Christian talk? They're really good at that Christian talk. But then you look at their life and you're like, what? What? Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 21-23, which is the verse that bothered me more than any other verse growing up in the church. It says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, this is Jesus speaking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. It's possible to honor God with our lips but our hearts be far from him. It's possible for us to believe in God but to live as though he doesn't exist so much so that God would say, I don't know you. It is a relationship killer to think that you can know God on your terms. You don't get to know God on your terms. You only get to know him on his terms. He's God, God bless you, Holy cow. Heart palpitations for us. God, heal us all. Please, and her. We were talking about something really important here. God loves you. He has a plan for your life. But we cannot approach God on our own terms. We have to approach him on his terms in which he is God and we are not the only way for us to access eternal and abundant life that he offers is to come to him on his terms. And so remember that verse, it says that only those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and I think more than anything else, I want all of you to enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if you ever thought about what eternity would be like. Who you might see there. Sometimes we think about that, like if you've had... Um, family or friends who've passed away that have known Jesus. You know, man, I, I look forward to seeing them one day. There is the idea in the Bible that there's a great cloud of witnesses, right? That there's those who have gone before us and that one day that, that we'll be able to be reunited with them. That's, that's not the goal of heaven, right? Like we're gonna be like in the presence of God. It's gonna be incredible. It's gonna be awesome. But I do think that there's a place that we're going to see and recognize one another. And I do think about how sad it would be to get to heaven and as a pastor, to say, man, these people were in my church. They were plugged in. They were committed. They were, they were giving. They were serving. And then I get there and, and you're not there? You ever wonder why God has to wipe their tears away? i tell you why. I'd be crying. If I got there and you were not in heaven, I'd be heartbroken. I mean, I, I almost get emotional just driving through neighborhoods around here. Thinking about the people who could walk to our church, who don't know Jesus. And we have the place of telling them the good news of who Jesus is, of helping them to have eternal, abundant life. And and listen, it's not just eternity that's gonna be better. When you embrace Jesus, it gets better right here, right now. (laughs) It's not like I gotta wait. No, 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 there are benefits in the here and the now. And it would break my heart to have someone here not clearly understand That you have to obey God in order to go to heaven. You don't just get to pray a prayer and embrace a belief in your head. No, your lifestyle has to follow it. And I'm bothered, and maybe it's because I grew up in the church and I've been around so many people who can fake Christianity. They're really good at it. They know all the right answers, right? Like, I can make you think that I'm a Christian, even if inside I'm really not. And, and, And Jesus doesn't like Fakers. He isn't much for those who are playing the game. He's not much for people who are two faced, who are one way outside the church and one way in the church. In Revelation, he talks to this church that was in the city called Laodicea, and and there he says this, and it's so powerful. It's in verse 15, he says, I know your deeds. Like, do you know that God knows your deeds? Not just like in church, he knows what you're doing throughout your whole life. In fact, other pastors say he knows your thoughts. (laughs) which scares me a little bit. I know your deeds, and I know that you are neither cold nor hot, and I wish that you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, lukewarmness makes God sick. Living as a Christian atheist makes God want to vomit. And in John chapter eight verse thirty-one through thirty-two, Jesus said to the people who believed in Him, "Do Christian atheists believe in God? Yeah, they believe in God, but is believing in God enough? No." So Jesus said to the people who believed in Him, "Listen, you are truly my disciples if, if as a conditional statement, I'm not just His disciples because I believed in Him. I'm truly His disciple if you remain faithful to my teachings." Uh, what if I was faithful, but I'm not now? Well, then you're not truly his disciple. If you remain. Well, what if I like, got off path, but now I've gotten back on path? Hey, that's called remaining faithful. You got back to where you're supposed to be. Hey, congrats, you're truly a disciple. I don't get to make a confession of faith, live however I want, and expect the blessings of God. You are truly My disciples, if you remain faithful to my teachings. It's really hard to remain faithful to the teachings of Jesus if you don't know the teachings of Jesus. I think that there's only um, 6% of professing Christians who've ever read the Bible all the way through. Question, how are those other 94% going to remain faithful to the teachings of Jesus? when they haven't ever read the teachings of Jesus. And some of you are like, well, I haven't read the Bible. Hey, this is your year. Start reading. You say, well, I'm not very good at reading. Good. There's a way for you to listen to the Bible. Just download the app, you press a play button, and it'll read it to you. And if it's reading too slow, you pick it up. And if you don't like their voice, you pick a different one. I want every one of you to go to heaven. I want every one of you to be truly a disciple of Jesus, which means I want every single one of you to remain faithful to his teachings, which means every week I'm trying to teach you what Jesus taught. And and Jesus finishes this verse and he says, listen, and you will know the truth and it is the truth that will set you free. You know, most of us go through life avoiding truth. We don't want to really know the truth. And so we see truth coming at us sometimes, and we try to get out of the way. We dodge the truth. Because if that truth, like if I was to embrace it and hold that truth, man, it's like a mirror, and it shows me where I'm not right. And if I hold on to this truth, it's going to change me. And some of us are so stubborn, we don't want to change that we avoid truth. We try to act like, no, that's not true. No, that's not a big deal. I I just don't want to think about that. What if, instead of avoiding truth, we embraced it and we stood there long enough to let it change us? This is what being a Christian is. When we encounter truth, we must allow the truth to set us free from our deception. We wouldn't struggle to embrace the truth if we had the truth. We don't have the truth. The devil's a liar, and we believe him. We don't know we believe him until we encounter the truth. And then we have a choice to make. Am I going to believe the truth, or am I going to believe what I've embraced previously? And I am committed to allowing the truth to change me, even if it makes me uncomfortable. Does anybody feel comfortable when they first hear about tithing? Giving 10% of your increase to God Uh, No, no, I think I'll hang on to that. Thank you very much. I don't make enough money as it is. And the government keeps taking more money. I don't think God's going to get 10%. I'm sorry. But wait a second, there's a truth here. Does God need my money? No, he doesn't need my money. Why is he having me give my money? Oh, maybe he's trying to train us. Maybe he's trying to change us. Maybe he's trying to get our allegiance not to be in the things that we own and our ability to earn, but our allegiance and our trust to be in him that he will take care of us. Maybe there's a training going on and shaping my heart and my mind and how I think because of this truth, but I just don't want to disregard the truth. I'll just give whatever I want whenever I want because I just want to do whatever I want because I'm in charge of my life. Oh, no, you're not. A Christian is somebody who is not in charge of their life and they say, God, what do you want? I am submitting myself to you. It doesn't matter what the truth is, we need to allow the truth to change us. And when we pick and choose what truths we want, it's like we're back at Golden Corral. Anybody remember Golden Corral? Are they still open? I don't even know. The buffet. Buffets were awesome. My dad loved buffets. I grew up going to buffets. There was Old Country Buffet. There was Ryan's. There was Golden Corral. And they all had their own specialties, right? And you wanted to go to the buffet hungry because you got to eat all the food that you wanted to eat. And you got to skip all the food you didn't want to eat. Because there was food there you don't want. But the buffet allowed you to pick and choose what you wanted to digest. And some of us approach Christianity that way. It's like we're going through the buffet line. I want God as love. That's a good one. Uh, God's my authority. Let's skip a little bit of that. Um, oh, God is kind. Uh, we're going to be a little gentle. Um, don't judge other people. And, and we begin to build a belief system that we picked and choose. God's not inviting you to a buffet, He's inviting you to partake of a meal that's been prepared for you. You don't get to pick and choose. Here it is. Do you embrace it or do you not embrace it? Are you all in or are you all out? There's no in between. And we have to fully embrace what God has for us. The more you love God, here's the truth, the more that you're gonna love other people. Two two commands, love Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, everything that's in you. And then love your neighbor as yourself. As you do the first, you will do the second better because the first changes you and allows you to do the second. We must refuse to live as Christian atheists, believing in God but refusing to allow him to impact how we live. And when we live as a Christian atheist, it's a priority issue. We don't have God really as number one. And this morning, I wanna invite you and challenge you to make God your number one. And if you're married, that means that your spouse becomes your number two. Well, that's not what the romantic movie said. I heard that they complete me. That's not true. <laughs> Only God can complete you. Another broken sinner is never going to complete you. You're going to be disillusioned. You're going to go into this marriage thinking, man, it's going to be so good. This person is going to make me so happy. And then they're not. So don't. Stop it. There's a whole song. Just Stop. So here's the commitment I want you to make that God is to be your one and your spouse is to be your two. But but Pastor Alex, what about my kids? Children are important but they're not as important as your marriage. If you want to love your kids, invest in your marriage. Children are a temporary assignment. Marriage is a lifetime commitment. So if you want your children to succeed in marriage, model it. And as I mentioned earlier, marriage is not supposed to be held in higher esteem than singleness. So never forget that Christianity's founder, Jesus Christ, and the Bible's leading theologian, Paul, they were both single their entire lives. So when you come and you see those single people and you give them a hard time, like, oh, who are you dating? Oh, let me hook you up with somebody. Stop it. Stop it. Tim Keller in his book he continued he said that single adults cannot be seen as somehow less fully formed or realized human beings than married persons because Jesus Christ a single man was the perfect man. Paul's assessment in 1 Corinthians 7 is that singleness is a good condition blessed by God and in many circumstances it is actually better than marriage. As a result of this revolutionary attitude the early church did not pressure people to marry. As we see in Paul's letter, an institutionally supported poor widow so they did not have to remarry. We need to adjust our perspectives and our attitudes to see things the way that God does. That only happens when he becomes number one in our life. I'll end with this quote from a well-known and respected theologian from the 20th century named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is convicting to me. He says, you know, you should burn and you're cold. You should be alert and you're lethargic. You should be hungry, but you're stuffed. You should believe and you're afraid. You should hope and you reach for power. You should love and can't get away from yourself. You should let Christ be the Lord and you interrupt him. I want to not resist God. The things that I should do I want to commit to doing. I'm not going to be perfect at it, but I want to start now. God, I give you my all. And what you ask of me, I want. I want to do it. Help me, God. So as we close today, would you bow your heads? Lord, for those of us who have been convicted of the fact that maybe we've been living as a Christian atheist. We've been embracing a belief in you, but we really haven't been letting it influence our lifestyle. God, first, would you forgive us? God, forgive us for this sin. Forgive us for not letting you be God in our lives. But second to that, God, we don't just come to you for forgiveness. We don't come to you just to relieve our guilt. But Lord, we want to have a change of heart. Lord, we want to do things differently. We want to repent. We don't want to continue to go thinking the same way that we thought when we came in here. But Lord, we want to commit ourselves to doing things your way. And we know that we're not going to be perfect at it, but God is our intention. It's the direction of our lives. And so Lord, we commit to following you. We commit to learning your teaching so that we can be faithful to them. Because Lord, ultimately, we recognize You are God, and we are not. And we need more of you in our life. Help us to have wisdom, as Paul shared. Help us to see things from your perspective. May we not base our value on some relationship status, but may we base our value on one relationship, the one we have with you. I thank you, God, for this morning and this time that we've had to come to be challenged. Lord, may we embrace a relationship with you in its fullness. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifecasey.com.